Welcome to Window Dressing, American Trash and National Treasures. I'm Madeline Jane Aubel. This week, I talk about the 1958 Hitchcock film Vertigo. As mentioned in the last episode, Vertigo was not always seen as a masterpiece, but has in recent years enjoyed long overdue critical acclaim. My relationship with the film developed when I was a child, but took a firmer hold when I was 26 years old. 26 is the age Madeline, Carlotta, and presumably Judy were in the film. I mentioned that Heart of Midnight and Vertigo occupy the same space for me. What I mean is Heart of Midnight reflects my personal experience as a rape victim in a visual language that speaks to me loudly and viscerally. Vertigo was the film I found solace in after I was raped. I don't think I watched anything else for at least a year. Like Clute, I found comfort in it. So given the topic this week and the connection to rape, I have to give a trigger warning. Suicide and violence, systemic, generational, and in real time, will all be topics touched on in this episode. Vertigo is the film that taught me how to be alone. It taught me how to live with pain and loss. Hitchcock's idealized nostalgia for San Francisco in the 1800s through the lens of the 1950s reflected my nostalgia for San Francisco in the early aughts through the lens of the 2010s and now. I was raped at gunpoint in San Francisco the day after Christmas in 2010. Following the rape, I wanted to go back to the San Francisco from before before I was a victim, before the second tech boom, and before the 2008 crash. But that place was, and remains, gone. The lore that goes along with loving San Francisco escapes all time. I learned to live with the ghost of my home and the reality of the world at the same time. This film helped. Vertigo is based on a French book entitled From the Dead. It was adapted for the screen by Alec Copper and Samuel A. Taylor. The score was written by Bernard Herrmann. In recent years, the music has shown up in modern television shows like Ryan Murphy's Ratched, among others. Hitchcock directed and the film's location is San Francisco and the surrounding area, although significant portions were shot on the Paramount lot. This film is as much a love affair with the city and its dark and exciting past as it is with Madeline and all of her different iterations. I'm going into this episode with the expectation you have seen Vertigo at least once. There are many times when I do not have such an expectation. If you have not seen it, watch it. If you have, I would still encourage a rewatch before or after listening to this episode. John, Johnny, or Scotty Ferguson, depending on which female character is addressing him, is played by Jimmy Stewart. I will be referring to his character throughout by the name preferred by the woman he is in said scene with. For example, if Jimmy Stewart is with Midge, he is Johnny. If he is with Madeline, he is John. And if he is with Judy, he is Scotty. If he is alone or with a male character, I will call him John, because my name is Madeline, and that would be my preference. Madeline and Judy are both played by Kim Novak. Kim is an interesting choice in this role, and not Hitchcock's first. I'm not a big fan of hers generally, but it's hard to argue with her performance in this role. 
It's interesting because generally the woman who play the woman on the screen is incredibly important to me, but in this role, I only see reflections of myself, not the actress. John recently retired from the police force because of an unfortunate affliction, vertigo. He was clinging to the edge of a rooftop when a police colleague reached down to pull him up. John was frozen with fear and could not extend his hand to the man. The police colleague, in his attempt to save John, fell to his death. This incident led to John's vertigo. Barbara Bell Geddes plays John's friend and old flame, Midge. Midge lives alone in the most comfortable apartment I have ever seen on screen. She is converted into a studio space for her work as an illustrator for women's lingerie advertising. The walls are lemon yellow, the kitchen countertops are blue, and her cupboards are crowded with brightly colored, yet practical, cocktail glasses. Midge has a bright yellow vinyl step stool with smaller steps that pull out so the stool can also function as a chair. The stool is representative of Midge herself, a grounding character whose presence affirms reality. I have had a version of that stool as a sort of talisman of stability for at least 10 years. Mine is taupe with wooden steps and creaky metal legs. I will go into detail about the other elements of her home and her character's role as a grounding force within the film as we get deeper into individual scenes. Tom Helmore plays Gavin Elster, John's college friend who contacts him about following his wife Madeline, to quote, see where she goes. Gavin is aware of John's vertigo-induced limitations. John accepts Gavin's offer, but falls in love with Madeline instead of saving her. She is haunted by the ghost of her maternal great-grandmother, Carlotta Valdez. Carlotta was a cabaret dancer in the early days of San Francisco. She met and fell in love with Madeline's great-grandfather. He kept her until she became pregnant. He then took the child and left her flat, or, as it is described in the film, he threw her away. Madeline is 26 years old, and according to her husband, has become possessed by her great-grandmother. In many ways, Carlotta is the third woman that Novak portrays in this film. But what appears to be a haunting with suicidal ideations as its main symptom is, in fact, a murder plot that sets John up to be the witness to Madeline's suicide. But it was Elster who strangled the real Madeline and tossed her body off of the bell tower at San Juan Batista, the mission settlement south of San Francisco where the body fell. John was unable to climb the tower stairs because of his vertigo. Judy helped by playing Elster's doll and stand-in wife in which to entrap John in love and murder. Post-killing, John is institutionalized with, quote, acute melancholia coupled with a guilt complex. Midge visits but cannot reach him. It is at this point in the film that Midge exits. She is not present when Johnny eventually recovers. The recovery is accompanied by harp dream sequence music, gauzy sunlight, and a missing Midge, making it feel like it might be a hallucination. Whether it is real or in John's head, he looks for Madeline at all the old haunts. The Palace of the Legion of Honor, the museum, the flower market, Ernie's, a now-closed local restaurant, and finally he locates her, 
or at least a woman who looks like her, Judy, the workaday version of the now deceased Madeline. John pursues her, woos her, and makes her over as Madeline, just as Elster had done. Judy is Madeline, as much as any woman can be an amalgamation of ghosts. She loves Scotty and lets him change her into a visage of Madeline and Carlotta. The puppeteering and deception end with Judy's death from the same mission tower that Madeline's dead body was thrown from. The tower that the plot hinges on has its own destruction story. The original mission was established in 1797. The church was built in 1803. The San Andreas Fault runs directly through the base of the cemetery on the mission grounds. In the earthquake of 1800 and the earthquake of 1906, the buildings and grounds suffered serious damage, some of which was not remedied until 2010. The first tower, which was steeple-style, was built between 1880 and 1910. It was destroyed in a fire. The second tower, the stucco version that is featured in Vertigo, was removed during one of many restorations, this one funded by the Getty in 1949. So, when Hitchcock was filming in 1957, the tower was gone. It was recreated at the Paramount lot in large and miniature forms. The exterior shots are largely superimposed drawings of the tower. I think the most relevant aspect of the tower is that it's so important to the plot, yet didn't exist during filming. It's unclear to me if the stucco tower that did exist was ever really original to the structure or style of the mission. Much like Madeline, Carlotta, and Judy, the lore at the core of the tower is a ghost. Now a three-bell wall stands at the mission. It too has suffered from earthquake damage, but is currently in good working condition after yet another restoration. Vertigo was costumed by Edith Head, who at least in part was responsible for the mood of the film and the visual component of character building. She famously puts Madeline in gray, as in the infamous gray suit worn by Madeline to the flower market, and that Judy was made to wear later by Scotty. Gray generally doesn't look good on blondes, as Kim Novak herself said, but Head insisted on this detail, and it did, in fact, work to benefit the film and the character by making Madeline look off, ghostly, or in some way wrong. The most important thing that Head does visually for the film is to make the mood tactile. Putting emerald green on Madeline in the beginning makes her appear regal, fertile, and strong. Dressing Judy in an ensemble of a similar shade, only one that is garishly cheap and over-accessorized, makes her appear earthy, hoary, and accessible when compared to the regal fertility of Madeline's gown. The makeup and hair also reflect the character differences. Miss Novak's makeup was done by Ben Lane, with the help of Harry Ray and under the supervision of Wally Westmore. The hairstylist supervisor was Nellie Manley. Peggy Thomas and Lenore Weaver were uncredited hairstylists on the film. Most of the makeup department was uncredited as well. Madeline's makeup is soft and understated, at least what passed for understated in 1958. Her eyebrows are drawn on in a way that I have always found garish and unnatural, but it is reflective of the drawn-on, over-enlarged brow that is still holding on in current fashion. The tips are winged up and out in a way that Haley Bieber fancies herself the inventor of. 
This effect makes your face look pulled back or snatched, but it also looks artificial and strange. I would go so far as to say that it masks beauty to alter your brow shape that dramatically. But to be fair, I never struggled with the super thin brow of the 1990s or 1930s, so perhaps it's just preference. Madeline doesn't wear eyeliner as much as soft gray shadows on her lid. The mascara is defining, but near non-existent color-wise. Her lashes look natural. Her near-white blonde hair is back from her face and pulled up in the back in a twisted chignon in the style of Carlotta Valdez. It's chic and simple. Judy, on the other hand, is drawn garishly. Her eyes are cat-winged on the bottom and the top. The points of the liner meet beyond the edge of her eye. This particular technique creates a negative space between top and bottom point that changes her eye shape. Judy's lipstick is overdrawn only on the top lip. Think Joan Crawford in the 1940s and 1950s. Madeline's lipstick was slightly overdrawn as well, but in much more subtle tones, making it less obvious. Judy wears darker and brighter shades, making the distinction between lip and skin pronounced. Her hair is brown and worn half up and half down. It is more wild than Madeline's, and her baby hairs are curled all around the frame of her face. There is no escaping the lurid vulgarity of a shop girl's look when compared to a wealthy wife's, even if they are the exact same woman. The set decoration on this film set the standard for decades to come. I have already mentioned the color psychology at play, but there is also an object-as-art effect that happens in each character's space that adds tremendously to the overall understanding and experience of the film. The team that worked on creating this magic includes Sam Corner and Frank McLevy. The first scene I'm going to look at takes place in Midge's apartment. Johnny, Jimmy Stewart's character, is lounging on a burgundy-cushioned rattan chair with his feet up, attempting to balance his cane in the palm of his hand. He is chipper and excited that tomorrow his cast, or as he refers to it, his corset, comes off. He was left with an injury after his near-death experience that led to his vertigo and another man's death. Midge is sitting behind a drafting table, illustrating a bra that sits in front of her propped up with wire. She is surrounded by paints, brushes, sketches, and other tools of the trade. An elephant ear plant sits in the corner of the room, which reminds me of the same plant that used to sit in the now-closed San Francisco Art Institute library. There is a sea foam green puff of tulle fabric on the dresser behind her. It is likely a sample of something she is working on sketching, but the presence of it reflects another talented artist, Dare Wright, the children's author and model of this same time period. She had a series of self-portraits, one of which was sea creature themed, and this feels like a scrap of fabric from that photo shoot. The work she is known best for is her Lonely Doll series of books where she poses and photographs dolls and bears, often in somewhat compromising poses. That particular expression of puppeteering and Dare's fairy tale-tinged tragedy lives perfectly in that puff of tulle as some kind of muse. Dare was also well known for her decorating sense, particularly in small spaces. Midge's apartment takes a page from Dare's book, or more accurately, one of the many home and garden articles her home was featured in under the heading of Small Spaces or Thrifty 
in the 1950s. Midge's practicality and stability have everything to do with the home and workspace she has built for herself. She is unloved, so she is free. She loves Johnny, but he does not return nor deny her affections. It just sort of stands still. Every other woman or every other figment of a woman in the film is burdened by the weight of corrupted or corrupting love. It's difficult to admire a lovelorn woman, but I certainly take note of the tools, talismans, and space she lives in that crafted safety and stability for her. More than anything, she has real agency. Her freedom doesn't lack a sense of romance. She feels it in the heart-shaped elephant ear leaf that brushes her shoulder as she works, or the fairy tale tool that floats behind her, or the breathtaking views of San Francisco that lay before her. Longing for Johnny aside, Midge is the only character who has any consistent beauty in her life. I would argue, though, that Madeline, as a ghost, offers the purest form of beauty, torment of your lover. But that is hardly consistent. Midge is made out to be a mother character by Hitchcock. There are even scenes like the one above where Johnny says, Oh, Midge, don't be so motherly. Later in the film, Midge says to Johnny at the insane asylum where he landed after his mental break, Mother's here. Mother was not meant to be a compliment in this context. It is an indication, ironically, that her role is that of caretaker, not lover. We certainly know she knows how to keep a home and care for herself. As for John, he lost a fair amount of his equilibrium as a result of his acrophobia and vertigo, creating the perfect environment for love. After Gavin Elster convinces John to tail his wife Madeline, John starts to fall for her. Madeline is transfixed by a ghost from the past and stricken with dizzy spells that mirror John's ailment. Their individual loss of stability feels positively seductive in tandem. This becomes apparent after a montage of Madeline mirroring Carlotta, the long-dead great-grandmother of the wife of the woman she is pretending to be. She embodies ancestral injury not because insanity runs through her blood, but as a direct result of her gender. Women are tossed away in every time period, in different ways and to different degrees, but that truth spills blood every generation. After a series of San Francisco heavy spots, like the Mission Dolores and the Palace of the Legion of Honor, Madeline ends up in the Presidio at Old Fort Point. The Presidio is an area of San Francisco backing up to the Golden Gate Bridge that was formerly a U.S. Army base. It's filled with Army barracks, some of which, in my day, had been converted into student housing. It's a very haunted and strange area, not that different from Treasure Island in feeling. Treasure Island is a small island between Oakland and San Francisco in the middle of the Bay Bridge. It is still owned by the U.S. Navy, but functions as part of District 6 of the city of San Francisco. I lived there for a time. The Golden Gate International Exposition of 1939 was held there. There is archival footage available of that exposition, and it is well worthwhile. It is a bit like the World's Fair or the Panama Pacific Exposition that the city hosted in 1915 on the mainland. That exposition gave San Francisco the above-mentioned museum, the Palace of the Legion of Honor, where Madeline goes to visit the portrait of Carlotta. 
The museum still stands today, and it looks identical to the image on film. Madeline arrives at Old Fort Point, holding a small round bouquet adorned with ruffled edges and a ribboned handle. She is dressed in a navy blue sweater paired with a full mid-length skirt of the same color, brown pumps, long white gloves, and a sheer scarf to match. She slowly picks out petals and tosses them into the water, before finally tossing the whole thing in. She nears the edge and throws herself into the water with a sudden eruption of emotion. John rushes in after her, carries her limp, wet body to her car, and leaves behind the broken bouquet. John takes her to his warm apartment near Coit Tower, with its patterned coffee and cream-colored wallpaper reminiscent of rattan, dusty mauve drapery, and a cream-colored couch that sometimes takes on purple hues in the low light. It emanates a warm, masculine glow that moves beyond the screen and into your bones. Madeline emerges from her post-suicide slumber, wearing a red robe, his red robe. He directs her to the fireplace and gives her coffee to drink. He is fully enraptured by the idea of her at this moment. Her aloof facade, emphasized by her penciled brows and careful affect, combined with roiling emotions contained just under the surface, make her a special combination of unreachable and pliable. A puzzle, perhaps one that is for him alone to solve. The puzzle aspect can be seen as an obvious ploy to entice John, an ex-detective with his own problems he cannot sort out. But for me, it's connected to sorting out my injuries, or more specifically, what is intrinsic to me versus what is coming from outside. This mystery that had never been carefully considered suddenly became urgent after I was raped because I attempted suicide immediately after and failed. I was 26 years old, just as Madeline, Judy, and Carlotta were at the time of their deaths. I jumped into the bay from my Treasure Island backyard, which backed up onto the water. I remember sitting there on the rocks, as I often did before, and I decided dying was worth a good attempt and some concerted effort. When I went into the water, it was so cold that I fought to get out. I was a synchronized swimmer when I was younger, so I could, even as a heavy smoker, hold my breath for great lengths of time. I was banged up some, and I recall how exciting and scary the water felt beneath me, and how metallic the Bay Bridge looked looming in the distance. I instinctually climbed out when I was able to get a grip on the slippery rocks. The only thing left after that failed attempt was to sort through the damage. On a day filled with wandering, John and Madeline find themselves deep in the coastal redwoods. Overwhelmed, Madeline runs to the open space next to the ocean, out from the darkness. She stands still, the wind whipping around her, next to a lone cypress tree with the ocean behind her. She is wearing a plain black turtleneck and a matching slim skirt. Over this ensemble hangs a luxuriously large, raglan-sleeved cream overcoat with matching pumps and a sheer black scarf worn on the outside of the coat's collar. She recounts a dream where she is, quote, walking down a long corridor that was once mirrored and fragments of that mirror still hang there. And when I come to the end of the corridor, there is nothing but darkness. I know that when I walk into the darkness, that I'll die. John says, if I could just find the key, the beginning, and put it together, 
Madeline responds, and explain it away? If I am mad, that would explain it. She runs away further towards the water's edge. John follows, takes her into his arms, and as the sea and the music swell, they kiss. I cry. Madness is most certainly an ancestral injury for women who are ignored, abused, or simply in the way. After my failed suicide attempt, I called a rape crisis counselor. I mentioned this in the last episode. That counselor reported my suicidal ideations to the police, who arrested me and took me to the hospital where I was 5150'd, which is the California state law number for detaining a person who is, quote, a danger to themselves or others. It is a 72-hour hold. The longer you are held, the higher the numbers go. For example, 5250, 5350, and so on. Later that evening, Madeline finishes her dream and relays the details to John in a late-night call that seals both their fates. She describes a tower with a bell and horses that she rode as a girl. John realizes that the place that Madeline is describing is the Mission San Juan Batista. They drive there together the following day. While inside the barn, outside of the church, Madeline describes being scolded by one of the nuns, Sister Teresa, as a young girl. Of course, this isn't her memory. This is Carlotta's memory from a hundred years ago. John attempts to break the spell she is under with the proof that this place is real, not from a dream. She knows better, but they both fall into each other's arms and kiss, regardless of their respective disbelief in the logic of the other. Madeline breaks out of John's arms and runs into the church and up the staircase to the top of the tower, with John failing to follow behind her because his fits of vertigo are more destabilizing than his love for her. She screams a piercing yell, and her body falls past John's eye in an open window near the spot he is frozen in. After Madeline's body falls, John makes it out of the tower to the ground below, where he goes straight home instead of calling for help. The shot of the tower is actually a drawing, because as previously mentioned, the actual San Juan Batista bell tower had been torn down ten years prior. The strange falsity of the location itself at this point in the film creates a before-and-after unreality that I find akin to how the brain takes in information after such a traumatic event. Things appear sick-looking and off. The inquest that immediately follows Madeline's death feels as if it were also taking place in an unreal nightmare. The building looks like a southern manor turned courthouse, with spectators included in the deal. John stands before a judge to be found guilty or innocent in the case of Madeline Elster's death. He sits in humiliating silence while the judge pontificates on, quote, what was left undone. After the proceedings, John ends up with me at the psych ward. It is in the psych ward that Midge makes her last appearance in the film. She comes to visit Johnny and finds him unreachable. After a discussion with his doctor where she reveals that he is very much in love with the dead woman he failed to save, she leaves solemnly. The next scene opens with dream sequence harp music and gauzy sunshine over a San Francisco cityscape. John is suddenly out of the hospital and visiting all of Madeline's old haunts. Midge is gone. She isn't anywhere in his life or in the remainder of the film. 
It is not in Midge's character to give up on Johnny. Even though it appeared as if she had, I don't believe that it is congruent with what we know about her or the stability she functions from. This gives me serious doubt as to the veracity of the last part of the film. I think it is entirely possible that John's need to solve the puzzle that was Madeline and forgive himself for failing her led him to create an alternative explanation within the confines of his own mind. I am not sure it matters either way. The result is the same. Two women dead, or maybe just one. Outside of the flower shop, through the looking glass of the shop's reflective windows, Scotty spots a common brunette with Madeline's face. He follows her home to the Empire Hotel, an SRO in the Tenderloin. He sees her through the window and counts the floors and unit numbers from the outside of the building so he can locate her room, as he had done with Madeline at the McKittrick Hotel. When he gets to her small room and knocks, she answers as Judy, Judy Bartlett of Salina, Kansas. Judy has brown hair, worn half up and half down, with tiny curled baby hairs that frame her face. Her makeup is garishly drawn. She has cat eyes on both upper and lower lids. Her lips are overlined, and her eyebrows are colored so dark they look purple in the green cast of the neon sign that burns bright outside of her window. The overall effect is cheap and clownish. This is not an indictment of Judy, just an honest assessment of her look. She is dressed in an emerald green sweater dress worn with a polka dot collar and cuffs in a closely hued shade that doesn't quite match. Her hoop earrings are set with many white stones, mimicking the polka dot of her shirt and giving away that they are costume pieces. A green-bellied bunny brooch is worn at the center of her chest, just below her collar. This is an odd brooch placement. I guess you could call it more a decorative pin than a brooch, but either way, it should be worn on her left side over her heart. To me, this strange jewelry placement indicates a lack of support. A neglectful mother, no sister, no woman in her life to explain where you wear brooches. After Scotty leaves Judy's room, she gets ready to go have dinner with him. She sits down at her writing desk and has a flashback of her as Madeline at the top of the San Juan Batista Tower, watching Gavin toss his already dead wife down. Judy is the one who screamed. She is determined at this point to get Scotty, Madeline's John, and Midge's Johnny to love her as herself. She goes to her closet and chooses a cheap-looking violet dress to wear to dinner and pushes the gray suit, Madeline's gray suit, further back into her closet. A montage sequence of somewhat romantic early dating scenes ensues. The problem is he won't touch her, doesn't look at her admiringly, and doesn't love her. He, like Madeline did with Carlotta, is ritualizing his loss at the expense of another. Judy is more than willing to try to be partly a ghost and partly flesh in a desperate attempt to please him. This act isn't so different than just dating. John, Scotty, as Judy calls him, takes Judy, the counterfeit Madeline and real woman that works at Magnin's, to Ransahoff's department store under the guise of kindly buying her clothes. 
Having played the role of Madeline, Judy has the unfortunate knowledge of the other woman's wardrobe because it happens to be her own. She walks into the store fully dressed as herself, wearing a light brown cardigan, slightly unbuttoned at the neck, and an earthy green circle skirt in wool cinched at the waist with a brown belt. Interestingly, at this point in her dating of Scotty, she has started wearing her bunny brooch over her heart, a small detail that indicates the transformation into Madeline has already begun. She sits next to Scotty on the showroom couch, watching model after model walk through wearing different gray suits, none of them right, according to Scotty. Judy says, You're looking for the suit that she wore for me. You want me to be dressed like her. The saleswoman and the handful of models in the room can hear, see, and sense that something is really wrong. Unfortunately, having witnesses compounds the humiliation for Judy. She has a burst of anger and says, No, I won't do it, as she gets up and walks to a mirrored corner in the room, head down, hands behind her back. She faces the mirror. Scotty comes up from behind and looks at her. She sees him see her through the reflection. He says, Judy, Judy, it can't make that much of a difference to you. Do this for me, Judy. The last part, Scotty says in an angry, hushed tone that comes out like a desperate growl. Judy responds, I don't want any clothes. I don't want anything. I want to get out of here. The tone of her speech is that of a woman who has been beaten and is given up. This scene has been compared to metaphoric rape, and that is true, but it's also something else, a thing that most women will know immediately in their bones, the feeling of humiliation at a man's displeasure. It's like to be pleased he has to humiliate you, tell you exactly what's wrong with you, exactly what someone else has that you don't, and how often something good could have happened if you hadn't prevented it with your manner, looks, attitude, body language. The list is endless. Never good enough and always to blame. That is the life of a woman, even one that enjoys the ghostly delights of being Gavin Elster's dead wife, Madeline or the beauty from yesteryear who had to kill herself to escape the constant reminder of being tossed aside, Carlotta. Ancestral injury played out by the hands of even the most well-intentioned men is strangling us all. Scotty convinces Judy to dye her hair blonde and fix her face in accordance with Madeline's preferences, which, let's get real, was likely crafted for her by her husband, who killed her. The only Madeline we ever saw was Gavin's creation and the center of John's obsession. But it wasn't really Madeline, and it wasn't really Judy either. She is a ghost. They're both ghosts. When Judy returns from the salon, her hair is still half down, the way Judy typically wears it, not pulled back as was Madeline's style. Scotty insists she go pin it back. She walks into the bathroom, and when she emerges... The glow from the neon green sign just outside of her window casts a ghostly pallor to her presence. This is the much raved about color psychology in action. Madeline and Judy's healthy emerald green has turned to a sick yellow green, enveloping them when viewed through the eyes of John or Scotty. The once healthy and vibrant woman slash women are now ghostly and ill. He sacrificed Judy's soul to get back the woman he loved, who was also sacrificed. 
He pulls Judy in close and kisses her. They begin to spin wildly through Scotty's brain. Suddenly, Judy is Madeline, and they are back at San Juan Batista kissing for the last time before she falls to her death. He has resurrected the longing that can and never will be quenched for either of them, the longing that she will die twice for. That feels like all love to me. As a staunch feminist of my own brand and a die-hard romantic, this isn't simply a sexist act. This is gothic romance, and it runs deep in our culture and our bodies. Nearing the end of Scotty and Judy's courtship, the two prepare to go to dinner. They are sitting in Judy's tiny one-room hotel, where she puts the finishing touches on her look. She asks for Scotty's help to clasp a necklace. It's an old-fashioned ruby necklace, and after a few moments, Scotty realizes it is Carlotta's necklace. The one she is wearing in her portrait that hangs at the Palace of the Legion of Honor, and the one Madeline's grandmother had given her. Scotty conceals this fact from Judy, but instead of driving to dinner locally, he begins the 100-mile trip down to San Juan Batista, with Judy as his captive. Once they arrive, he pulls Judy out of the car and growls the words, I need you to be Madeline for a while. He drags her into the church and pulls her up the steps all while she is screaming, crying, and begging for him to stop. There is one shot of her high-heeled feet dragging up the stairs like a broken doll. She screams that he is afraid, that he can't reach the top, but of course he can. Love may not conquer fear, but rage always does. The plot of the setup spills from his lips, laced with vitriol, and she confirms through terrified sobs. When they reach the top, she backs into a corner away from him. And the necklace, Carlotta's necklace. There was where you made your mistake, Judy. You shouldn't keep souvenirs of a killing. You shouldn't have been... Just then, a nun walks in behind the darkness of the bell. Judy sees that nun and is terrified. Perhaps it appears to be Sister Teresa, the nun that scolded her, from her dream, Madeline's dream, Carlotta's childhood memory. She stumbles backwards and falls to her death. Thank you for listening to Window Dressing, American Trash and National Treasures. I will be back in two weeks with the third episode of my second season. Please like and subscribe and rate this podcast wherever you listen. And follow the pod's Instagram page at Window Dressing Podcast for more content. I plan to start a Patreon page soon, so stay tuned for updates on that. Thank you. I'm Madeline Jane Auble.